So I'm going to get right off on this and, and ask you a question, a personal question. You don't need to answer it, but I want you to think about this, okay? What makes you angry? Okay. Uh, kind of think about when is that last time or a couple of times when you really lost your cool and specifically what was it that made you so angry? Well, I can remember a few years back, actually this is when I was in my 20s, so it's been more than a few years back, when I purchased a pair of slacks at the mall, I got home, I'd bought four or five pairs, I got home, I found one of those pair of slacks had some holes in it, like thumbnail size holes in the slacks. So I was like, okay, next time I get a chance, I'll get back, I'll exchange those. And it was about two weeks later, uh, I got back to that store and I found the clerk there at the, at the cash register and I said, hey, I need to exchange these slacks. And she said, when did you get them? I said, I got them a couple of weeks ago. She pointed to a sign. It said, all returns must be made within 10 days. So I'm out of luck, right? Well, my receipt said on the back, all returns must be made within 30 days, right? The receipt they printed and they gave me said I had 30 days. And when I asked her about that and showed her the receipt, she said, sorry, store policy 10 days. I'm thinking, what? hey, you guys gave me this receipt. It says I got 30 days. And so she got a little more caustic. She got a little more defensive. I got a little more caustic. I got a little more aggressive. And there we went, uh, me trying to return these damaged slacks. Um, my blood was starting to, to boil. And she said, uh, well, let me look at those slacks. And, she, and I'm pointing at these holes, in, big holes in the back of these slacks. And, and what she notices is that the slacks are wrinkled. And she says, clearly you've been wearing these slacks. Like wearing these. I don't wear slacks that have holes in them, lady. I put them on. And that's what, yeah, I put them on. I saw the holes in the back when I looked in the mirror. And she said, well, I, you've been wearing, and obviously at this point, she is fishing for a reason to get out of that, you know, receipt that I've got that says I got 30 days to bring. She is fishing. And so we're both getting more and more upset. I don't know what the problem is here. Just let me switch these slacks out. And finally, I said, I need to talk to the manager. And this is when things really got hot. She said, I am the store manager. I never did get my slacks returned. I gave up. I gave up. Hang on. I still get a little worked up. That was back in the early 90s, folks. I still get a little worked up when I think about that. And I'm telling you that story because when I think about when I've really gotten angry, it's times like that that I've really gotten angry. And I'm telling you that story because I think it says something about me. And maybe if you think about when you get really angry, it will tell you something about you. And maybe it's something that's not so flattering. What makes me angry? How about a dispute over a $20 pair of slacks? How about that? Now, I believe that what makes us angry, if we will pay attention to it, can really inform us about ourselves. It can really expose a lot about who we are. This is on your outline this morning. What makes me angry says a lot about the state of my heart. And be ready, it may not say something good about the state of your heart. There is a gap, you see. There is a gap 
between what I should be angry about, okay, and what I actually get angry about. You with me? There's a gap between what I should get angry about and what I actually get angry about, a big gap. And I wish I could tell you that the most angry I've ever gotten was over injustice, right? I saw a group or a person being oppressed, and I got outraged by that. I'd like to tell you that the most angry I ever got was over racism that I witnessed or over violence against children or something like that. But I can't tell you that and be honest. Shamefully, my personal history suggests that what I really get angry about is much smaller, much pettier, and much more personal to me and my interests. So the gap between what I should get angry about and what I actually get angry about, it tells me how flawed I am how sinful I am, how superficial I am, and how much, Holy Spirit, you have left to do in this life. You've got so much work left to do here. So anger, it's not good or bad. It's just human, right? And beyond that, I mean, even Jesus got angry. Uh, the thing about angry, angry, anger can be good, it can be bad, it can be healthy, it can be unhealthy, it can be selfish and proud, or it can be selfless and proper. So write this down on the outline this morning. There is such a thing as righteous indignation. There is such a thing as righteous indignation. There is an appropriate time to be furious. Okay? But if we're honest with ourselves... Most of the time, what gets our ire up is when we feel slighted. Most of the time, what really gets us going is when life hasn't been fair to us. We really get angry when we think about the injustice that we have suffered. The anger of Jesus is so, so different. We're going to look at a story in Mark chapter 11 this morning that shows us just that. Now, my prayer this morning, this is the thing that we're really working on this morning. My prayer is that our anger can teach us about ourselves. My prayer is that His, the Lord's anger, can show us what matters to Him, what matters to His heart. And my final prayer is that the Holy Spirit can use anger, yes, anger, to remake us into the image of Jesus. So that our anger would show us something about ourselves, that His anger will show us something about what matters to Him, and that the Holy Spirit can use anger to form us into the image of Jesus. Now, Last week, we talked about a rich young ruler. Jesus met the rich young ruler. He and his disciples were on the road to Jerusalem. And in chapter 11, they are going to arrive in Jerusalem, and things are going to begin in the Gospel of Mark. Things are going to begin moving at a fever pitch, okay? Because Mark 11, all the way through Mark 16, we are in Jerusalem with Jesus. In other words, these chapters... Um, these five chapters are going to talk about just a few days in the life of Jesus, the final few days. Once he gets in Jerusalem, he's not going to leave Jerusalem until he is resurrected. Now, or the Jerusalem and the surrounding suburbs like Bethany, right? So Jesus and his entourage entered Jerusalem, and you remember this, it was 
It was spectacular. The population of Jerusalem had lined the highway into town, and they were so excited, and they had such great expectations. There they are. King Jesus rode in on a donkey. That's how kings rode into town in those days. People honored him as they would have honored a a human, an earthly king. They spread their garments out on the road in front of him. They they pulled down tunics and their tunics and they pulled down uh, palm branches off trees so that his ride could be a little softer into town. Anything to honor the king. It was a climate of celebration, a climate of great expectation they had been oppressed by the Romans for so long and many if not most of the crowds lining the roads saw this as their king this is our king our king can feed the masses with just a few loaves of bread our king not Caesar can heal any disease with a word from his lips our king not Caesar is the one who the word of God has been prophesying about and pointing to for centuries and they exulted as their king Jesus rides into the capital city of Jerusalem chapter 11 verses 9 to 11 Jesus was in the center of the procession. And the people all around him were what? They were shouting, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Listen closely here. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in the highest heaven. So Jesus came to Jerusalem went into the temple and looked around carefully at everything. He left because it was late in the afternoon. He returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. The Romans are getting a little nervous, right? This young, extremely popular rabbi and leader is riding into town on a donkey and this uber-popular leader, the, the multitudes are treating it as if it is a royal entry into the city. They are affording him all of the, the rights and privilege they would to a, to a visiting dignitary, a, a foreign king. It's a state visit. And they're even shouting about the coming of his kingdom. And he goes straight up to the temple, which, by the way... <laughs> The temple is, adjoins the Roman garrison in the city of Jerusalem. The Antonia Fortress, named after Mark Antony, is right there. The temple is in the shadow of that edifice of Roman military power. So he walks around up there, he examines things. Then he and the disciples, late in the day, they head back out to Bethany, probably to, to right, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house, where they're going to spend the night... Now, this is the question that's on everyone's mind. What is about to happen? Something big is going to happen. That's what they're all talking about. Now, the expectation they had, okay, the logistics uh, are a little bit unclear, but the expectation is pretty clear that the king of Israel is going to kick the Romans out and that Israel, well, Jesus is going to make Israel great again. And the city of Jerusalem is packed 
It is packed because this is the Passover. This is the Jewish Super Bowl. Everybody's in town for this. People from all across the countryside and other cities. And when Jesus walked into the temple the next morning, the next, the next day, the place is crowded. It's like Walmart on Black Friday. I mean, it is crowded. And the excitement and the tension is at a fever pitch. Here he comes. Here comes Jesus, the one so many are hanging their hopes on. What is he going to do? And what he did was go off. He was furious. Jesus was enraged. You were, how can you forget this story, right? He comes into the temple and he is shouting. He is yelling. He is turning over tables. He is making a scene. He is clearing people out of the temple courts, driving off salesmen and animals and trinkets are falling over and money is splashing around on the ground. Jesus went off. John's gospel, we know Jesus took cords and he formed a whip and he is swinging this whip around. Now we don't usually think of Jesus, the prince of peace, as an angry weapon-wielding sort of guy. But here it is in Mark chapter 11. The temple leadership feels personally affronted, insulted, and attacked by Jesus. The crowds are, are confused and disappointed by Jesus. After all, isn't he supposed to be leading the charge against the Romans? And he's attacking us? This wasn't the Jesus they wanted, but this is the Jesus they got. And I just kind of thought this week, I wonder if I've made space to encounter the real Jesus or if I project so many of my wants and my desires and my dreams on Jesus that he becomes something other than the real Jesus. Well, this is the Jesus they got, the real Jesus. And what he managed to do was walk into the temple on the busiest day of the year and completely disrupt all activities, at least for a time, in the temple. Why did he do that? We're going to get to that, okay? Just hang in there. Why did he do that? We'll get to that. But here's what I love about the story. First, this is one of those stories in the New Testament you can't look away from. I love that. It captures your attention. It holds your attention. This is Jesus knocking stuff over, yelling, swinging a whip. How can you turn away from that? The second thing I love about the story is if you think about it, the story shows you what matters to Jesus. What matters to the Lord? So what was it? What made him so angry? And I used to think, oh, it's the commercialism. It's the buying and the selling in the temple. You know, we shouldn't be buying and selling things in church buildings. Look at that story. That's not what the story's about, really. It's not. Um, some commercialism was actually necessary. So it's not a condemnation of that. 
you know, folks had traveled to Jerusalem from far, a two or three days journey, maybe more, and they wanted to make a sacrifice. They needed to make a sacrifice. It was Passover. The last thing they needed to do was lug a lamb or a bunch of, a bunch of doves down from their hometown and feed them and take care of them all the way down. So it was much, 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 much more convenient to be able to purchase an animal for sacrifice there on the temple grounds. Prices were inflated, but it was still a better deal than hauling the animal from way up where. Now, so some commercialism was necessary. The money, money changers there, there was money that needed to be exchanged. Everybody that showed up at the temple, you had you know, Roman currency or you had Greek currency. In other words, you had currency that had either Caesar's face on it or some pagan god's face on it. You couldn't use that in God's house. You needed to exchange that money for temple shekels that were appropriate. So did the money changers make a little profit on that? Yes, I'm sure they did. But here's what had happened. Caiaphas. You probably remember the name, Caiaphas. He is the high priest. Yes, the same one who in just a couple of days is going to oversee the sham trial of Jesus. Well, Caiaphas had made a few changes around the temple area. He had decided that they would allow the money changers and the, the merchants into the outer courts of the temple because it was way more convenient and to make sure that he got his cut. He and his family got his cut out of the money that, was, that, was, that went through the GDP there at the temple. Before Caiaphas, uh, this stuff had happened a few hundred yards away. It had happened out in the Kidron Valley, uh, close to the temple, but certainly not on the temple grounds. But here it was. It's in the temple courts. And guess what? This was the place, this was the only place on the temple grounds where Gentiles could gather, where outsiders could gather and worship and pray to the God of Israel. Only Jewish men were allowed further on into the temple complex. So this is the one and only place at God's house where Gentiles could participate to some degree in worshiping the one true God. And that place had been overrun with salesmen, shoppers, and money changers. Right? So in his angry outburst, Jesus yelled... My temple will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah as he yells. Isaiah chapter 56. Uh, by the way, it is a, a series of prophecies. Words from the Lord all about his concern and his love for the outsider, for the foreigner, for the non-Jew. Listen closely, Isaiah 56. God says, I will also bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord, who serve Him, love His name, who worship Him and who do not desecrate the Sabbath day of rest and who hold fast to my covenants. I will bring them where? I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem. And I will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept 
their burnt offerings and sacrifices because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. For the sovereign Lord who brings back the outcasts of Israel says, I will bring others too besides my people, Israel. That's a pretty cool prophecy. I love that. I think that's a prophecy that among other people is talking about us, outsiders, non-biological descendants of Abraham. And so Jesus, his anger boiled over at how these outsiders were being elbowed out, how these precious people who his father loved were not being allowed into the presence of God. The poor, by the way, the poor, even the Jewish poor, were being crowded out as well. They couldn't afford to be there at a time like this around the temple because of all these inflated prices. So Jesus, yes, his anger boils over that God's people are not thinking about the outsiders. Not thinking about the ones that, that don't worship with them every Sunday. Not thinking about the ones that, that don't know the Lord like they know the Lord. So back to the question. What makes my anger boil? Getting messed around at a department store. <laughs> what makes the Lord's anger boil? The lost, the poor, the outsider being neglected, being mistreated, frankly just being ignored, treated like a nobody. The temple grounds... That sacred space on planet earth for all the nations to gather had become a terrible witness, had become a, a pathetic testimony to the one true God. So what makes you angry? Having to wait a little extra at the gas station this week, did that make you angry? Slow internet, does that make you angry? Your spouse forgets to put the toilet seat down, does that make you angry? A bad call that went against your football team yesterday, did that make you angry? So may God... May God use our anger and really use that gap between what we should be angry about and what we actually do get angry about. May he use that to teach us about ourselves, maybe to humble us a little bit. And having seen Jesus' outrage in the temple, may we sense a call from our Savior's heart to care a little bit more about people, outsiders. To care a little bit more about the things that really matter. The things that matter to God. Jesus says, you care about profit, I care about people. You care about convenience, I care about compassion. And so we're going to finish with these two prayers. This is on your outline this morning. Just a couple of quick prayers to kind of think about this week. I want the Holy Spirit to put this on our hearts. The first prayer is this, Lord, use my anger to teach me about myself. 
and leverage my outrage to lead me to the heart of Christ and to the things that really matter. And then the second prayer, Lord, may my anger motivate me to be a force for positive change in the world, not just for looking out for number one, making sure I don't get ripped off at the department store, but may you use this to motivate me to care about things that really need to change, really need to be different. We're going to have a time this morning, you know, Jesus talked about God's house being a being a house of prayer for everybody. So we're going to have a time where you can just pray this morning and would love for you to take advantage. You can pray with me or one of our shepherds. Uh, you can pray with someone around you. Just put your arm around them and say, hey, this is on my heart. Let's pray about this. Or I know you're dealing with this. Let's pray about this. Please use this house of prayer space this morning to do that. Maybe you need to come to Christ. Maybe you need to come to Christ, to this King, to this Savior, and offer your life to Him and pledge your allegiance to Him. You can do that this morning, being buried with him in baptism in the name of Jesus, moving forward in your life. However you need to respond, do that as we stand and as we worship.